Welcome to the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers on the history of medicine and medical humanities, which were given to audiences in University College Dublin as part of the Centre Seminar Series. For more information on the series and all of our activities, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash body This episode features Professor David Hofford, Senior Fellow at the Samueli Institute in Virginia. His inquiry has focused on spiritual experience, the experiential grounds for spiritual beliefs, and the role of reason in their development and persistence. His paper, Folk Healing Comes of Age, was given in Trinity College Dublin on September 16, 2010, and was in association with Trinity Long Room Hub. Professor Hufford was also in Dublin to launch the Folk Healing and Healthcare Practices in Britain and Ireland, Stethoscopes, Wands and Crystals a new book edited by Ronnie Moore and Stuart McLean. Folk healing comes of age, perhaps. That's uh, the title I've taken here. I've put the question mark there because there are, there are interesting problematic issues about just exactly what the startling developments at the end of the 20th century actually mean for folk medicine. But before I go on to the substance of my talk, I want to say some things about the book. This is the first book that simultaneously addresses folk healing and complementary and alternative medicine, which is what we tend to call it in the States. It's odd that it's taken this long, because in many ways, as I'll be saying as we go along, it's actually difficult to distinguish CAM, I'll call it, uh, from folk medicine. And yet the people studying folk medicine and the people who have come to study CAM often don't even seem to be familiar with each other. Uh, to analyze the folk healing, uh, re- the relationship of folk healing to biomedicine. It seems obvious that that should be important, and yet to many people it, it has seemed that the relationship itself is so obvious that it doesn't require analysis, but it does. And the book provides a very nuanced uh, and excellent um, introduction and, and progress on that analysis to recognize the linkage of natural Uh, and supernatural or spiritual healing concepts in folk medicine and in camp to engage the globalization issues entailed in folk healing. The the idea that folk healing has been in the process of demise in the Western world is a very long-held belief which is completely incorrect. There's also been the, the thought that as Western culture become, takes a hegemonic stance with regard to the rest of the world, that it leads to the collapse of traditional healing systems in other countries. Now, that doesn't seem so much to have happened either, but in fact, the healing systems of what used to be the colonies of the Western world now have come back to the Western world and are competing just very nicely, thank you, with biomedicine, quite remarkably, that, that uh, and yet that has really not been discussed in, in the literature on either folk medicine or CAM. And in that discussion, to take the bold and I think extremely brilliant stance that, that Ronnie and Stuart have of rejecting the idea that this requires a choice between either a reductionist scientific position or a postmodern position either insisting on biomedicine as the normative standard or saying, well, there are no standards. Uh, sorry, that postmodern failure of nerve. They have avoided the two, transcended it, and I think that's all to the good. And this is all done in an empirical and transdisciplinary manner. So, bravo, not just to Ronnie and Stewart, but to all the participants in the book. 
Uh, so this is a milestone in a development I did not expect to see in my lifetime. I told Catherine coming over that when I took up my position at the medical school in 1974, I didn't know one other person interested in these things. I seriously didn't. Uh, people in my family pretended to be interested so that I could feel good about it. But colleagues and so forth, no, none. I was very quickly invited to other schools to talk about this because actually clinicians and medical researchers could pretty quickly see why this was interesting. But when I would go to those places, I didn't find other colleagues engaged in the work. And it was many years before, in fact, the first people I got to know who had appointments in medical schools in the States working on these things were my own graduate students after they got their PhDs. Um, so I really did not expect to see in my lifetime major social transformations that would lead to widespread intellectual academic interest uh, in this whole range of topics. Both the topic of folk and uh, complementary and alternative healing in the West and elsewhere, and spirituality and health. Those were the two things that I was most interested in. They both suddenly become hot and button topics just about the time I retire. Uh, I, I can't take credit either in my work or my retirement for having caused that to happen. I was just part of a process. Uh, but it's wonderful to see it and still be able to be engaged in it. Uh, and I would actually say, I don't think those are two things. I think they're two sides of the same transformation. I'll try to make that a bit clear. So this, what's, what this marks, I think, is contemporary society beginning to discover some quite revolutionary things about itself and about modernity. I don't, um, okay. yes. My, skip ahead here. Having said modernity, I don't want to scare you because I, I am not about to engage in a postmodern analysis. I don't know, some of you may be disappointed to hear that. Generally, though, I'm pleased when I find out that's not what's in the offing. Uh, nothing against postmodernism, in case there's some postmodernists here. But I, I think it's really, for me, particularly on topics that, like the one that we're talking about today, the postmodern turn as a rejection of scientism and positivism really reflects a kind of failure of nerve. Uh, and, and I think that we're getting past that, and I think the book represents that. So my argument for you today is going to be basically that mo the modern idea that folk healing is irrational and or non-rational, that's the more polite way to put it, is itself neither empirical nor is it argued logically. That once we recognize the failure of the disenchantment hypothesis uh, after Weber, and I'll say more about that as we go, but it's one of the things that, that thrilled me when I started reading their book to see that Weber was incorporated into the discussion. Uh, but this is that we need to, uh, we find that we need to reconsider issues of rationality, not in order to derive a new rationality, but to reconsider the biased manner in which, the, in which traditional ideas of reason have been misapplied. So when I say that folk healing uh, and CAM both uh, have a strong tendency, a trend, to be rational, I'm not saying you realize that once you adopt a new kind of rational stance. I'm talking about the old kind of rationality. Um, so I, I want to do this by giving you a bit of my own trajectory to show you how I came to be here uh, and why I would be so excited by the, the kinds of concepts I summed up for the book. I started graduate school in 1966 at the University of Pennsylvania studying folk belief. 
And I was taught that folk beliefs were non-rational and non-empirical. And I took exception to that. Uh, I came from a small town uh, in a rural area. My parents were not particularly well-educated. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And well, my brother had been first just two years before me. We were the first two to go. Uh, and I had a lot of respect for people without advanced degrees, actually. A lot of respect for their practical knowledge and their intellectual toughness. And when I got to college and began to encounter the attitude, <coughs> attitudes of highly trained academics toward folks like the ones I'd grown up with, it was, it was depressing at first. And when I began to exercise a little more sort of autonomy in my own thinking, it became annoying and then infuriating. Uh, and so I wanted to challenge this uh, in, in my work. But to give you an example of what I'm talking about, Wayland Hand, who was a very dear man, some of you are familiar with him, I know you folks quoted him in the book. He was a, an American professor, uh, originally a Germanic scholar. He was, called himself a comparativist. He was interested in comparing folk beliefs from around the world, which he did by making long lists of them and then sort of tracing their history as they migrated. And he did a remarkable job of doing that, of what we eventually come to wonder is, is it really a good idea to do that? Do you get anywhere with it? But he amassed a huge amount of material, and he was a great help to me as a teacher uh, and subsequently a colleague. So I, God rest his soul, I don't, I don't mean to be insulting to Whalen, but I have to use him as a, a, an outstanding example of the antiquated attitude. Uh, in the Brown collection of North Carolina folklore, which is a massive two-volume tome that uh, Wayland edited and turned into a reference book for folk beliefs throughout the world, he expressed the academic consensus of the time, describing folk beliefs as falling into three groups, those that are patently false, injurious, and harmful, superstitions, idle conceits, which he classed as popular beliefs, and irrational notions. I suppose that idle conceits and irrational notions are better than patently false and injurious beliefs, but it's pretty negative, pretty negative picture. In the Brown collection, just an example, uh, he listed two folk belief, believed causes of blindness, sleeping in the moonlight and watching a lizard shed its skin. They certainly sound like folk beliefs, and they certainly sound not very rationally founded, and I'm not about to tell you that, in fact, they're correct. Based on the 33 years I spent at the medical school, I'd say probably not true. On the other hand, they didn't, he did not list looking directly at the sun, which was also a widely held belief in the same area, that if you spent a long time looking at the sun, it would make you blind. Well, why wasn't that there? Maybe because the scholar believes that that's true. So just a, a short example, the, the large, the big distinction on folk belief for most scholars at that time was to look at a belief, and if they could believe it, they tended not to consider it to be folk belief. And if they couldn't believe it, they did. Uh, part of the othering and exotic uh, attitude toward folk belief. Uh, another example from 1961, a little before I got to graduate school, James Harvey Young, a historian of medicine, said that botanical medicine is a persistent form of quackery requiring a new anti-quackery crusade to combat it. Regulatory agencies are applying greater rigor in enforcement. Congressional committees are expressing concern. New laws in the offing. But still, quacks and their victims cast a shadow on the medical brilliance of our day. 
Uh, a little later, a decade later, Wayland noted uh, in the introduction to the first national conference on pro-feminism in the U.S., uh, that it had become clear that millions of Americans were still clinging to old-fashioned medical recipes despite systematic efforts to debunk self-curing. Hospitals have slowly tried to understand the many problems with which they are daily confronted by the reluctance of patients to put full trust in scientific medicine. Now, both the brilliance of medicine of our day in 1961, and we might say it again, uh, and the, the idea of putting full trust in scientific medicine are really implicit references to issues of cultural authority, which we won't have time to unpack here, but that are very important. These scholars accepted the cultural authority of medicine as a given, and biomedicine, as they understood it, which was mainly at second hand, uh, was normative for them. They did not engage themselves in inquiries into the medical issues themselves, that was for physicians, and physicians were not expected to engage themselves in the cultural aspects of this. You simply take the medical knowledge as handed over by the physicians and apply it uh, across the surface of the folk tradition. And yet I, I wondered, could it be that at least some of the herbs that we're talking about uh, might actually be effective? It wasn't until actually 10 years after I was in graduate school that I saw the first good uh, sort of systematic evidence that that was the case. This lovely article published in 1976 uh, in, in a peer-reviewed journal by two agricultural uh, bio uh, botanical scientists who took a list of uh, more than 3,000 plants known to have been used against cancer in folk medicine. They used historical and anthropological documents. And they compared that list to the list being compiled at the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., which had at that point already established a screening program for plants from around the world. The intent was and is to try every plant in the world eventually against a set of tumor models that are highly sensitive to seek to looking for plant substances that show some promise for development into chemotherapeutic agents. So already in 1976, there was a pretty substantial number of those that had been shown to have such effectiveness. Um, but the scientists found that over half of the genre and over 20% of the species in the folk medicine record were known based on the NIH list to have anti-tumor activity. And that meant that they were turning up in the folk medicine list at about twice, twice the rate that the NIH was finding them in their, in their program, and they were, not, they were not taking plants in at random. They were starting with things that they thought had some likelihood. So the folk record was way ahead of the sort of theoretical record from NIH. Quite astonishing, especially when you consider that really none of these are cures. They're things that, that retard tumor growth. Uh, some of them may have a curative potential for superficial tumor skin lesions, that kind of thing. Um, and also this, this was associated with accurate folk knowledge of anti-helminthic agents uh, and poisonous plants. So somehow folk herbalists, without the benefit of double-blind trials, uh, had compiled substantially accurate information about plants in this particularly difficult area to, have, to, to, to find effectiveness. And that was 1976. The NIH program has continued. Now we're over 30 
years out, if you redid this study, obviously the number would be higher because many of the plants that had not been screened yet will turn up on the folk record list. So James Harvey Young uh, and Wayland, at least with regard to herbs, were kind of precipitous in writing them off. Um, now I've been talking about folk healing and folk medicine and made some references to CAM. have to say something about definition here. What we're talking about is unofficial beliefs and they tend to be informal. That is, now not necessarily normal, but not, I'm sorry, not necessarily oral. That was a big mistake. They're pretty normal. They, they can be in print, and I'll show you some examples of folk tradition in print. Uh, but informal compared, for example, to chiropractic, which is an alternative health system, but it's quite formal. It's highly structured. So this is part of the reason that we can't simply say that CAM and folk medicine are the same thing. Although I will say that folk medicine clearly is one kind of CAM. It's just that there are other kinds of CAM. Uh, so my plan as I went forward in my career was to ask to what extent are folk beliefs rational and empirical? And what is their current importance? And how could research on this serve medical research and education? This was kind of contrarian. I'd already been told that they were not rational and not empirical, uh, and that they were also not current, that they were in the process of dying out. I, and nobody was looking at the possibility that this would be useful to medical research. And the interest in medical education was only how could we help uh, those in charge to stamp out these beliefs because, as Wayland said, it was causing hospitals a lot of trouble. Well, my plan was to proceed in a quite different way. In Pennsylvania, and this was before I began my dissertation research, I found Pennsylvania German folk healers who were called powwows. Uh, this is an old tradition. Powwow is an Algonquin word. It's not what the Pennsylvania German healers called themselves. Their English neighbors called them that, probably as an insult. Uh, the powwows mutter, you might say, incantations, prayers that others cannot hear. They hear they're saying something, but they can't hear what is being said. And I think that the English neighbors sort of said, well, it sounds like Indian gibberish, something like that, so they called them powwows. Uh, the German word is brauche, to try. The tradition is called braucherei in German. And... Um, it, it, is, it exists now in both English and German versions in Pennsylvania. This book, first published in 1820 by a German immigrant to Pennsylvania, uh, contains all of the remedies and arts that this, Pennsylvania, this German healer who emigrated to Pennsylvania knew. And he wrote them all down and published the book uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Since that time, it has gone through more than 250 editions in both English and German. You can still buy it on newsstands, and it's used. It's not. You, you can buy some historic history of medicine. Uh, old. Uh, what's what's the term? Um, it goes with age, folks. Uh, the the a, a, a book books that are that are intended to replicate older versions for historical purposes, uh, but books like this one I, I have this copy in my library printed on newsprint they're not for academics they're for powwows, uh, both people who have a full time practice and for people who just use them uh, for as kind of a first aid thing and inside the cover it also tells you that it will protect you 
from death by fire, uh, and that it ensures that you will have last rites if you die with it on your person. So it has magical properties also. Uh, here is a Pennsylvania German powwow. His name is Homer Deal, practicing, laying hands on this gentleman. Uh, it's a kind of spiritual folk healing uh, treatment. He is reciting an inaudible traditional prayer while laying on hands. This was not hard to find. When I told people I was going to go out and study folk medicine, they said, well, so you're going to do something historical. You're going to work through records. I said, well, no, I think there might still be a couple of them out there. And, and even folklorists, by and large, were skeptical that unless I went to really remote, marginal, isolated places, I wouldn't find them. Well, I just found them all over the place. Uh, but they don't advertise very much. And they, if, peop, if they know people are looking for them, they don't necessarily say, oh, well, give them my address. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a, a long-standing history of legal tension religious tension, as is mentioned in the book in the 19th century, and very much in, in the latter 20th century, too, in the U.S., the opposition to this kind of practice has been as much from religious authorities as from medical authorities. Uh, it, it is heretical, as well as, as, um, as whatever the physician might call it. Anyway, I did find this. I also found the health food movement. I didn't think of it as complementary and alternative medicine because we didn't have that term. In fact, we didn't have any aggregate term in the 1960s. So I wanted to look these things up, and you could tell this from the quotes I gave you earlier, uh, in the library, maybe using, we didn't have electronic searching then either, but if I was going to go to the card catalog, there was really only one term that would give me a shot at finding many different traditions and practices of this sort. Anybody want to guess what the word was that was reasonably effective? Quackery. That was it. I could find chiropractic, I could find herbalism, I could find powwow. It was all there. Um, anyway, the health food movement was below the radar. It wasn't in the card catalog at that point, even though it had actually been around for a while. And in fact, you can trace the history of this back centuries, although it wasn't called the health food movement, although the term health foods was first used in the 19th century by one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, denomination, Ellen White, in one of her early books, used the term. Uh, Sylvester Graham, known for the graham cracker, although I'm sure he's spinning his grave. I don't know if you have graham crackers over here, but it's a popular thing in the U.S. that has no relationship to what he originally created, which was a whole grain kind of biscuit, because he said that white flour was an abomination, that white flour was causing a lot of sickness, that refined, he didn't call them carbohydrates, but the refined carbohydrates were a problem. The lack of fiber in the diet was a problem. He said that publicly for the first time in 1826, 150 years before Dennis Burkett first published uh, medical studies on the importance of fiber in the modern diet. Um, but it wasn't called the health food movement back then. But in the 1960s, people were calling it the health food movement. The Seventh-day Adventists had their little shops which tended to look like drugstores, and they'd be run by an el usually an elderly couple, both Seventh-day Adventists, they would wear white jackets, and there were a lot of pills, because a lot of vitamins and supplements, as well as some food. But then right down the street, you might find a natural food store run by hippies, which looked very different, different kinds of people tending the cash register, and along, you, you didn't get many pills, but you got big bags of dried beans and that sort of thing, as well as little pipes and other kinds of drug paraphernalia. Uh, mixed in with the natural foods. It was really interesting in the 60s to see you had these two ends of sort of the political cultural spectrum simultaneously engaged in the natural food movement 
loathing each other on all other grounds, and yet occasionally getting together to talk about you know foods that were a good source of potassium, that sort of thing. Uh, organic farmers, most of whom were neither hippies nor Seventh Day Adventists, but the the early local organic agricultural movement had been underway actually since early in the 20th century. If any of you are familiar with uh, anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner, the anthroposophical movement, uh, beginning around uh, around 1910, had something called biodynamic farming that was a, sort of an early precursor to organic farming. Uh, but this was small time, and I would say it was a kind of folk agriculture uh, in ways that I don't have time to go into. Uh, but the first article that I published, and I think I published in 1971, uh, on health practices was called uh, The Health Food Movement as a Folk Group. It was actually a, a bunch of groups. It was a number of different groups, but it was informal. And the transmission of information was typical of what you find in folk groups. Uh, and it was very much unofficial. It was outside and opposed by conventional medicine. Uh, and then I also found the La Leche League. How many of you are familiar with the La Leche League? Okay. You might wonder why I've got that here. People are often these days a little surprised to see that coming up. Um, in 1956, three mothers in upstate New York joined together to look for information on breastfeeding. They wanted to give it a try. Now, this was at a time when, as part of the health food movement, Adele Davis and some others were advocating all kinds of things as natural practice that was healthier with regard to food. This was a time, and it's sort of hard probably for many young people to imagine this, when breastfeeding was not only sort of out of fashion, but was actively opposed by obstetricians and by pediatricians. In the U.S., there were women given drugs to prevent the development of milk supply uh, after giving birth without even being asked, uh, because it was simply assumed that the milk was just a bother. I mean, what were you going to do with it after all? I guess the physicians have forgotten what people used to do with it. Uh, at any rate, it was posed, and these mothers could not find any authoritative sources of helpful information. And it turns out that while there is something that certainly is very natural, breastfeeding is very natural, it, it requires knowledge. Uh, there are problems that come up in breastfeeding that can cause people to give up the breastfeeding, and there are also remedies for those problems which were, and today still, are somewhat difficult to find in conventional sources. So <clears throat> the La Leche League, uh, although it was in the process of formalizing itself, and it became a network and it did publish a book, it remained very much a sort of a folk group, because you have local groups forming in communities where nursing mothers band together to uh, support each other, to give each other tips, uh, and to help to resist what turns out to be the opposition from the pediatrician. And when I went to Newfoundland, and that was what came next, I went and did four years of uh, field work in Newfoundland, my, uh, my second child, who had been born just before we moved to Newfoundland, <coughs> was very, very sick, spent much of his first year in the hospital. Uh, he had asthma, he had been premature, and we were absolutely committed to breast milk for him. And in Newfoundland, there was a La Leche League in the city, the only city in Newfoundland, which was where I was at the University of St. John's. And that group uh, put together for me a milk route. And I would go and gather breast milk from these, the, the, the homes of the different members of the league and take it to the hospital. 
and make the doctors let our baby have it. And the doctors were quite inflamed by this. I remember uh, one doctor saying to my wife, if you were a normal mother, you would have dropped him off and we would call you to tell you when to come back and pick him up. He was critically ill and he was only about three months old. He'd been in the hospital more than half of his life at that point. And asthma, after all, we know now that uh, in, with asthma, breast milk as opposed to formula is very, very important. So anyway, uh, that I would count as one of the sort of groups that, that even today spans uh, sort of between uh, folk medicine and complementary and alternative medicine, although we eventually in 1992 get the endorsement of breastfeeding by the American Academy of Pediatrics, always a forward-looking organization, caught up in 1992, <laughs> uh, and although as I'm going to show you, it didn't help that much. Uh, anyway, I went to Newfoundland because it was isolated, it was old-fashioned, it was also very Irish, by the way, and I liked that very much. Um, and there I found some things, somewhat like what I found in Pennsylvania. First, I found the old hag, which is the subject of this book, which uh, everyone at that time considered to be a kind of folk malady. It was, uh, pe people in Newfoundland said you'd wake up during the night, you'd hear something approach, you couldn't move, something would come in, climb up on your chest, it could kill you if you didn't stop it, and there were lots of remedies for it. Um, I was able eventually to show that this is what is uh, in sleep research called sleep paralysis, but the sleep paralysis was not well described. Uh, and the contents, which many people thought were folklore, are not in fact folklore. They are consistent contents across subjects. Uh, rather mysterious, interesting. Um, unfortunately, we won't have time to go into them today. I also found the health move movement there in Newfoundland and the La Leche League. When I went to this remote, isolated outpost of North America, I found pretty much what I found in Pennsylvania also, and that has been my experience ever since. You just, If you want to go someplace, go ahead, because it's fun to travel. But if you're looking for this, you just need some human beings. Wherever you are, it's there. Uh, and the, the assumption, the stereotype, that it's isolated, marginal people were characterized by these things is not, it's more than wrong. Uh, it's reprehensible. Uh, I'll just show you, that, as Stuart mentioned, my book was translated into Japanese. It's also been translated into Korean, Thai, and Greek. Those are countries that have very well-known traditions of it. In Japan, it's called Kanashibri. Uh, it's, also, it's found in every culture in the world. Uh, and there's some very interesting Irish stories about it, too. Uh, I mention it because it has made it possible to use folk knowledge from many cultures to change substantially an important piece of sleep research and to change psychiatric diagnosis because this was being profoundly misunderstood and being used to diagnose psychiatric disorders, which is totally inappropriate. Uh, and the reason that, that that could have happened was that the knowledge about this experience that we find in other cultures was absent from modern Western culture and from medicine. Medicine needed to find this out from the folks in Newfoundland, although they could have found it out from the folks anywhere. Um, but since I was in Newfoundland, that's where I got it. Anyway, there in 74, I joined the College of Medicine and Behavioral Science. Was my goal to improve compliance? I think that's one reason they gave me the job. They thought, this is a man who specializes in knowing about all these crazy ideas our patients have that drive us nuts. Maybe he can get them to stop doing that. But I had a much more subversive uh, understanding of what I wanted to do. I wanted to improve understanding and cooperation for mutual benefit. Uh, and the reason that they let me stay there for 33 years 
I think, is shows that I managed to get them to come along with that program. Uh, and I think that is very much where medicine is headed today. Now, I want to give you some examples, further examples, about some of what I have been implying and stating about folk medicine. And this brings gender, uh, I've already brought it in, I'm going to bring it more directly into the conversation right now and use it going back to breastfeeding. In 1867, the first artificial formula was invented by Henry Nestle. Uh, and then 1956, the year that the La Leche League uh, was formed, breastfeeding was down to 20% of American women at that time. It was a dramatic drop as a result of economic pressures and cultural changes. Uh, the La Leche League managed to turn that around, partly the La Leche League, some other features, the La Leche League wound up not only as part of the health movement, but part of the women's health movement. And the, the, I think that those of us interested in folk medicine and CAM should pay attention to, particularly beginning with the book Our Bodies Ourselves in the late 1960s and the reiteration of those books up to the present. Because women, uh, both at the folk level and professionally nurses, primarily women, have been crucial in the development of these understandings in our society. Um, Anyway, by the 1980s, it was in decline again throughout the world. In 1991, the UNICEF said that if we could reverse that, we could save one and a half million infants a year uh, who were dying as a result of that trend. 1992, as I mentioned, the Academy of Pediatrics endorsed breastfeeding, even for American infants. Now, that having happened in 92, uh, a group of uh, physicians and scholars in 1995 did and then published in the Journal of the American Medical Association a national assessment of physicians' knowledge of this topic. It's a large national sample looking at both practicing physicians and residents. The result was there were significant knowledge and managed deficits in all groups. Uh, they asked, they gave samples of common breastfeeding problems, particularly low milk supply, jaundiced infant, breast abscess on one side, asked what the appropriate response would be, and as you see, these are percentages of the wrong answers. And the wrong answer in these cases is recommend stop breastfeeding. Now, I gave a talk on this topic years ago at a nursing school, and afterwards a nurse came up to me and said, I have long said that if you want to, that the best predictor of failure of a breastfeeding program is the involvement of the pediatrician. And I said, to myself. Well, I think I see a little professional jealousy here because I can't believe that's the case. That was long before this study came out. Now I see. I guess she was right. It's amazing. So even when, as medicine, re as medicine takes ownership of this folk knowledge, and by the way, you will notice, the pediatrics folks did not cite La Leche League. They did not say those people have been right all along. It was, we have now determined that. Uh, but without the advice uh, and the information that would be most useful to the breastfeeding mother. Uh, only one thing was found to predict correct answers. Any guess? Personal experience. If it was a female physician who had breastfed or a male physician whose wife had breastfed, they were likely to get these things right. Now, is breastfeeding knowledge folklore? Or even more, is it folk medicine? Is it folk? Is it medicine? I mean, by the way, when you look at it in, in, in the pediatric context, it seems to be sort of approached as a kind of medicine that requires medical supervision. 
Uh, and actually, there's a problem with the whole term folk medicine uh, because it suggests, it, it, it leads you to imagine the medical model as the framework for the practice. And it turns out that at the, at, in the popular understanding of these things, that model doesn't work very well because the popular understanding is much broader than the medical understanding. Uh, so is folk medicine medicine? Uh, uh, and is folk belief a kind of knowledge claim that could be correct? Well, you know, the, the herbal study of cancer treatment suggests that. The breastfeeding example suggests that. But here's a study that suggests it. The use of yogurt with live culture for prevention of candidal vaginitis. Now, this is something that has been used by generations of women. Uh, the first study, first clinical study ever published in 1992. The design was a one-year crossover trial where subjects in the two arms served as each other as their own controls. Uh, 21 women, small sample, with recurrent casual, uh, candle vaginitis. Yogurt was added to the diet during the experimental phase. The placebo here was pasteurized yogurt without live culture. <coughs> and the result was a three-fold decrease in infections during the yogurt phase. The, the study ran into a problem in that the women on the uh, experimental arm of the study refused, many of them refused to change. Now, they're, it's blinded, so they're not supposed to know which arm they're on. But the effect size was so large that they, and no one in the placebo arm said, oh, I won't change. Nobody in the placebo arm thought they were on an active uh, treatment. So we can say the effect size here was very large. Uh, and by the way, one of the, there are a lot of lessons to learn from this, but one of the things this shows, and we can see it again with the, the herbalist data, that as valuable as double-blind randomized controlled trials are, and they are valuable, if you have effects that are large, clinical observation and, and or personal experience can detect them without the benefit of randomized controlled trials. So it's not the case that if we don't have those, we have no evidence at all. Uh, another uh, another wide, widely known, widely used practice using cranberry juice uh, to prevent and treat kidney and uh, bladder infections uh, in women, double-blind randomized control trial, first study published in 1994, and part of the take-home message here is you've got two conditions, uh, specifically female medical conditions, with a lot of morbidity that had never, that have a widely used folk treatment that turns out to be effective that don't get a clinical trial until the early 1990s. That's stunning. So anyway, the intervention was the use of cranberry juice uh, and the placebo was a cranberry flavored drink without real cranberry juice in it. The result was a dramatic reduction in infections. And the conclusion was that uh, the beliefs about the effects of cranberry juice on the urinary tract may have microbiological justification. Indeed, they might. Um, by the way, does anybody in the audience know why cranberry juice has this effect? Yeah? I think it's got something to do with it's the only fruit that doesn't change its nature when it goes through your digestive system. It retains acidity levels. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, did you say acidity? Acidity or Oh, acidity is what's usually said. Now, thank you for saying that. I was hoping, usually someone will say that. And I don't want you to feel badly about that. <laughs> the reason I do that is I think it's very important to know 
that acidity, that the, the idea that acidity is what causes it, and it's a very acid fruit juice, is, is a widely known tradition. And in fact, by the way, uh, the use of cranberry juice this way by medicine was common in the 1920s and the early 30s, and then somebody said, I'm not sure you really could change the acidity of urine that much. So they did some trials, and they couldn't get a substantial, a sufficient change in urine acidity to make any difference to the bacteria, so they said, oh, doesn't work. There's a very important lesson there also, since now we know that it does work. There is a compound in cranberry juice that prevents the adhesion of bacteria to the lining of the bladder and the urethra, and if they can't adhere, they can't colonize. So, uh, some general principles. Keep track of women's role in all of this. It's central. Uh, mistaken theories do not debunk remedies. You see this all the time. You see people doing something, you ask why they think, you know, what, what is the rationale for this? Not what's the evidence for it, but why would you think that works? And if you say, oh, that's impossible, it can't work that way, you think you've said, oh, it's impossible, it can't work. And most people perceive they first have an observation of something that works, that's interesting. Then they make up, basically, well, maybe it's because of, and in, as in cranberry juice, well, it's awfully darned acidic, maybe it's the acid. But just because that turns out not to be true does not mean you've shown that it doesn't work. Only an empirical study would show that. Uh, folk tradition is often way ahead of medicine. And we've seen several examples of that. Uh, but folk tradition plus medical science can be better than either one alone. Now, I don't think we see that in breastfeeding yet. In fact, I don't think we see it in very much of anything yet. But when I said I wanted to work toward cooperation rather than compliance, that's what I'm talking about. And even though I don't see it systematically in the profession of medicine, I do see it among many individual physicians who will work very reasonably with patients, uh, recognizing how unique and individual some of these kinds of effects may turn out to be. And also, the relationship between folk medicine and biomedicine goes in both directions, and it's ongoing. It's not a matter of early history, and it's not a matter of things moving from medicine to folk medicine. In my dissertation, which I called Folklore Studies Applied to Health, I insisted that we should learn from folk traditions, not only about them. And all of my teachers were all about learning about folk uh, traditions, and most of them were appalled when I suggested there would be something we could learn from them. Uh, but I believe that from architecture to agriculture to health, folk tradition is a vast reservoir of experiential knowledge not obsolete scientific knowledge. Although, as you see in the, in the uh, cranberry example, you have what would have been called before that study obsolete scientific knowledge. Doctors used to advise cranberry juice, but now we know that it doesn't work. No, it wasn't obsolete knowledge. It was medical knowledge, uh, but it was also accurate knowledge, but only folk tradition knew that. Uh, as opposed to the, the idea of sunken culture that we had classically in this area of scholarship. Uh, this relates to a common view of the history of medicine, namely that you can divide practices into the empirical and rational on the one side and the magical religious on the other. Note that that means, of course, the ones over here are neither empirical nor rational. And so on the left, you have herbalism, massage, amputation, wound closure, bone setting. On the right, you have witch doctors, shamanism, exorcism, 
and healing rituals. This is uh, the evolutionary model. And that out of the left side, you get medicine and surgery, and out of the right side, you get psychiatry. Well, both the linear evolutionary scheme, as I've already suggested, I mean, it, it is all of those things that are listed as if they were stepping stones toward the next thing are simultaneously in place for a very long time, and none of them seem to be going away. But also the dichotomy is false in a variety of ways. Uh, for example, herbalism, we think of that as a natural practice. Here's an herbalist, her name is Norma Myers. Uh, and she said, after 15 years of observing the plants, I've come to believe that herbs work not so much because of biochemistry and nutrition as because of energy fields. I have two beliefs that have grown out of feeling the energies of the herbs. The first is that these plants were made by the same creator that you made you and me. I was not a religious person when I first came into contact with the plants, but because of their influence on me, I have now become a religious spiritual person. And that's typical. Uh, I won't say all herbalists, but a great many herbalists and a lot of other people engaged in the various kinds of things that we would call natural healing practices, including a lot of the organic farmers who I talked to uh, back in the 1960s, were not just very spiritual people, but their spirituality was part of the reason that they were doing organic farming. Um, so, And the concept of the natural, what is natural and why natural would be good, very often has a spiritual rationale and justification for people. Uh, now, a little bit more on definition. We, we had a, a working session at the National Institutes of Health in 1995. One of the purposes of our meeting was to define complementary and alternative medicine. We did it this way. As the broad domain of this encompasses all health systems, modalities, and practices other than those intrinsic to the politically dominant health system of a particular society or culture. All practices and ideas self-defined by their users as involving illness and health. Now, why do we put it that way? It's a kind of, it sounds rather relativist, and it is relativist. I think that it's a relative term. It was, rather than saying those things not found in conventional modern biomedicine, we wanted to remind ourselves and everyone else that there was a time when Western medicine was alternative medicine in China and India, just as the conventional medicines of China, of what were conventional medicines in China and India are now complementary and alternative medicines in the United States. And some of my anthropology colleagues tell me that the, uh, the biomedicine delivered through the Indian Health Service out west, particularly on Navajo reservations, is complementary and alternative medicine to the Navajo populations whose dominant system is the Navajo healing practices. So it is, it is relative in that way. Uh, if folk medicine uh, is unofficial or vernacular health culture, then does CAM just equal folk medicine? Uh, and that means that now at the National Institutes of Health, we have a national center for folk medicine. Well, not quite so fast, uh, because the distinctions made in the book really are important, uh, particularly around structure and formalism. So I think, as I said earlier, we can say that folk medicine clearly is a kind of CAM, but that doesn't mean that all CAM is folk medicine. Uh, folk healing is informal, the institutional structure is implicit, that clearly sets it apart, for example, from chiropractic. But this is a fluid boundary, and I want to give you an example with Reiki. How many of you have ever heard of Reiki? 
Yeah, and, and 20 years ago, nobody in this room would have heard of Reiki. Uh, history and evolution of Reiki is said to have been discovered. There's a lot of legendary, legendary about Dr. Yusui, uh, but he was a Japanese Buddhist monk and a Christian theologian and teacher, an interesting combination. Left his seminary, began a quest to learn to heal the sick. He, had a, he is said to have had a, an overwhelming mystical experience on a mountaintop uh, and learned to use the healing techniques that he believed were used by Buddha and Jesus. His practice was brought to Western civilization uh, by Hawaii Takata, a Japanese-American woman in 1937 who went to Japan to train under Dr. Chujiro Hayashi, who was a Japanese physician who had trained directly under Dr. Yusui. So he had a very close connection to the master uh, with Mrs. Takata. Uh, what's Re what is Reiki? Now this is according to Diane Stein, as you'll see in a moment. Her language is, is different from what would have been used by Yusui or Takata. Uh, she says it's a subtle energy therapy that uses light touch. Rei, which means, the literal translation of Rei in Japan is spirit. Uh, she translated a little more broadly, universal uh, or universal spirit, referring to the energy of the spiritual dimension of soul. Ki, vital life force or energy that flows through all that's alive, and you're right to connect this with the Chinese chi or prana uh, in the Indian tradition, mana in the Western South Pacific, uh, and actually this kind of stuff, vital energy, entelechy is the Greek term for it, uh, found in all cultures pretty much throughout the world. And according to Reiki, key flows within the physical body uh, through pathways called, by Diane Stein, chakras and meridians that are around us in a field of energy called the aura. Again, those are Diane's words. She's very new age. Uh, you see, this was, in Japan, Reikis are a variety of spiritual energy healing systems. It's, it's a more generic term in Japan. Uh, the Yusui lineage was very formal and very expensive. Yusui only formed a few masters. Takata only intended to form maybe a dozen masters in her lifetime. People paid a lot of money, and the money was intended to make it to help with the restriction, at least that was the rationale, and it tended to cost around $10,000 to get the third level. So people didn't do it just willy-nilly. Then in 1995, Diane Stein, who was a Reiki master in the Yusui lineage, as I understand it, decided this was wrong, that this should be available to everybody, everybody should be out there healing. She started doing attunements, which is, Reiki is different from most systems in that you don't learn it exactly, it's done to you. If someone comes by, there's a ritual by which the channels within you are opened up for the Reiki energy to pass through, it's called an attunement. And she started attuning people for a dollar a piece at, the, uh, at women's health fairs. And also published the symbols, these symbols were secret and the symbols are to be traced on the palm of your hand at crucial moments during the ritual of healing. Well, this really let the cat out of the bag. Uh, so now, instead of having maybe 40 or 50 Reiki masters in the U.S., which we probably would have had, we do have in the Yusui lineage because the structured form goes on, but we also have what I would call folk Reiki healing, which is totally chaotic. Uh, and people combine all kinds of things and and someone in the book mentioned that you find a Reiki master on every corner or something like that. It's true, Reiki masters. But I don't mean to demean it either because I don't, I don't want to demean folk healing. I think really it's interesting what Diane Stein did. I don't, it doesn't seem very ethical to me. But it certainly took this from an elite, expensive, uh, very constrained system 
and put it out into the folk healing marketplace. And we have newsletters and, and we have manuals showing you where to put the hands and how to move the energy. And this, by, just so you know, I think it means that Reiki folks are pretty trustworthy. Uh, this is the, these are the principles they live by just for today to have gratitude, not worry, not be angry, do your work honestly, show love and respect for every living thing. Uh, by the way, does chi mean the same thing as chi? I said you should wonder about that. Well, if it does, I think this is a very important study. How many of you are familiar with this study from uh, JAMA in 1998 on Mount Oh, you're going to love this. Uh, moxibustion is like acupuncture, but you stimulate the point with a moxa roll, which is a compact uh, stick of herbs, usually in the Chinese case, Artemisia vulgaris, uh, also called mugwort. It looks like a, a thick incense stick, and you get it smoldering, and you warm the acupuncture point with the herbs. So this is a reference, or an example, of the traditional Chinese idea of the Qi qualities, the energy qualities of the herb being more important than the chemical qualities, because here you don't actually get any of the chemicals except whatever. You can smell it a bit. It puts out a, a mild smell. Anyway, this study done by an Italian and a, um, and a Chinese obstetrician published in JAMA started out with 260 women in their first pregnancy. It was randomized evenly. Uh, all the women were in their 33rd week of gestation uh, and they had normal pregnancies, and in the experimental group, the, the oh, I'm sorry, all of them uh, were diagnosed by ultrasound with breech presentation, that is, the fetus is upside down, feet toward the birth canal. So the intervention was stimulation of the acupoint BL67 with moxarolls for seven days. If breech persisted, another seven days. Uh, all, all of the people in both arms were allowed to ask for external cephalic version, which is kind of massage which is the only thing Western medicine has to offer that is intended to try to encourage the fetus to flip over. It's uncomfortable and it's not very effective. Uh, but everybody was allowed to ask for that. And the results of this were, at the 35th week, um, as you can, we won't look at mean fetal movements, that's a subjective report, and a lot of people probably wouldn't want to give that credence. Uh, I would, but we don't need to because we're the objective finding of cephalic versus pre-presentation. Uh, and as you can see here, at the 35th week, the experimental group was way, way ahead. Uh, very highly significant. As you would expect, as you approach birth, because you continue to have some natural flipping of the fetus, <coughs> the, the difference is not as big, but it's still very significant. Uh, some people, you, you might say, well, maybe the people in the experimental group had more external cephalic version. Actually, only one person in the experimental group requested it. 24 in the control group requested it. So if that would have produced a bias, it would have reduced the effect size of the moxibustion. And the BL67 acupoint is the outer corner of the little toe nail. This is, I love this study. There is no conceivable Western explanation of why warming that point with this herb would have any effect whatsoever on the fetus. And yet, we get a very large effect size. And we get a large effect size in what is an important condition associated with a lot of maternal and uh, infant morbidity. It's a very high risk for a number of kinds of complications at birth. Uh, and the, the obstetricians I talked to about this 
all said, wow, even if it's only placebo, that's impressive. Placebo. You know, what do you expect to make a procedure to have to make placebo powerful? It should be dramatic. It should be invasive. It should be interesting, possibly frightening. Well, the standard obstetric procedures around birth are all of that. Uh, and if anything is going to have a placebo effect, it's got to be a high-intervention hospital birth. Uh, so the idea that this is placebo is nonsense. Another take-home lesson from this, so you think now most hospitals are trying this, a moxa roll costs you about 40 cents in Chinatown in Philadelphia. You don't need to be a trained person to do this. Anybody who can light a match and knows where the little toe is can do it. So you don't even need to have nurses doing it. And you have a condition associated with a lot of morbidity. No, it's not standard practice. And there has not been, as far as I know, there has not been another study. Quite stunning. Uh, some things we just don't want to know. By the way, I gave you that because the moxibustion treatment is obviously, if it's anything, it's some kind of energy treatment. And the Chinese explanation is it's manipulating qi. So when you look at Reiki, we don't have the same kind of studies of Reiki, but Reiki people say that they can use their hands to manipulate qi in the way that a Qigong practitioner in Chinese medicine would do. But moxibustion claims to do the same kind of thing. The powwow claims to do the same kind of thing. He's shaking his right hand. He says he is shaking out the accumulated negative energy from the treatment that he's applying. By the way, he also has helped in every healing session, was, he's no longer living, was helped by the spirit of his deceased mother who had taught him to be a powwow and was always with him when he practiced. I also did years of field work at St. Andrew Beaupre in Quebec, the second largest healing shrine in North America. <coughs> and here is... This is about laying out of hands and energy. This is a reliquary with what believe, with the uh, advocates believe is the forum of St. Anne. St. Anne, by tradition, is the mother of Mary. Uh, and coming close to this reliquary, to a relic, which is a, if we took the time to discuss it, you see you just, you have to think of it as some kind of energy concept in healing, something that adheres to the relic, which is transmissible. And just to go back to the book for a moment, when you read the chapter about wool measuring, uh, as I look at wool measuring and I think about these practices for <coughs> accumulating and manipulating energy, uh, and then also priests and others at the shrine, where over a million sick pilgrims come every year, uh, lay hands on. And the belief of people who come there is not only in the relic and in the rituals that are used, but also that the place possesses a peculiar kind of energy that's shown over and over again to help people. So it's that, that energy kind of belief. Uh, this is a quote from a man who I interviewed who was at a non-denominational healing, at a non-denominational healing service in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was apparently healed of a hiatal hernia, which is a structural problem, diagnosed before and confirmed afterward by uh, upper GI fluoroscopy. And he described in his healing, which happened to him after hands were laid on him, and he walked out of the church, he was headed to his car, and he said to himself, I wonder if I got healed. I wonder how you feel when you get healed of one of these things. And he said when he thought that, he felt this tremendous power come down through the top of his head, flow out through his body and back again. He said it felt like something was boiling inside him. So four years later, I'm saying he felt the presence of God beside him. Four years later, when I read about the healing practices of the Kung, 
people in the Kalahari region of South Africa uh, who manipulate a kind of, uh, accumulate and transmit a kind of healing energy they call NUM, uh, which they says is a kind of boiling energy. They describe the feeling of being healed by this in the same way that Mr. Becker described his experience after the healing service. And many people at St. Anne de Beaupre told me they felt that also. And usually, not while anybody was laying hands on them. Often they would just be walking around the grounds or they'd be kneeling in church. And one woman I remember said in particular, it felt like someone was pouring really, really warm tar or oil or something over her. She felt it passing down over her rather than through her. Uh, these cross-cultural issues are complex and essentialism is a real risk which we need to avoid. But the study of these patterns is crucial if we are to take folk knowledge claims seriously. And it's also crucial that I recognize that I have gone on longer than I am supposed to. So think of the next little bit here as like a movie. Uh, okay, but on this matter of spirituality, uh, herein lies the failure of the disenchantment of uh, thesis of modernity, and this is what Weber, the founder of a really modern sociology and sociology of religion, said about modernity. The growing process of rationalization means the disenchantment of the world. Unlike the savage, we need no longer have recourse to magic in order to control the spirits or pray to them. He also made reference to mysterious forces, and there's a kind of equation in modernity between mysterious forces and spirits. So is chi... In Reiki, chi seems like a kind of spirit. It has volition, it has intentionality. In traditional Chinese medicine, at least post-Mao, chi doesn't seem so much like spirit, but it's a mysterious force, and it's non-material. So anyway, that is, from Weber's point of view, no spirits in modernity. uh, what I, I wanted to tell you, I'm just going to have to rip right through the, the, the closing slides, but, but an important issue is that we had assumed, based on actually pretty poor data, that uh, religion was in decline in the Western world, and we based that assumption on sociological evidence that looked at things like uh, affiliation with formal religious bodies. And it turns out that, yes, affiliation and membership in denominations is in decline, but spiritual belief and practice is, is either stable or on the rise. By the mid-1970s, the Gallup poll had shown that people who never went to church were more religious than they had ever been. Uh, so you get the, the decline in formal religiosity, but that does not mean spiritual ideas are going away. This is one of many polls that, that could show that. Um, this is another one showing that it's true of physicians also. Many, many physicians have strong spiritual beliefs about health and healing, um, and even believe that they've seen miraculous results among patients. Uh, so, <laughs> so there. Uh, uh, so, in closing, I want to say that the, reiterate what I said at the beginning: these issues that the book accomplishes, and say that healthcare, education, and practice need this kind of collaboration, illustrated by this book, to do healthcare well, in order to serve the four principal issues of medical ethics respecting not only patient autonomy, but also the autonomy of practitioners, doing the best, doing what is in the patient's best interest, at least doing no harm, and being just. And without attention to and knowledge about folk healing and CAM, that can't happen. And it doesn't happen in its absence. Uh, And so my last slide, this is from my favorite philosopher of science, Paul 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 Feyerabend, 
progress of knowledge in many places has meant the killing of minds. Today, old traditions are being revived and people try again to adapt their lives to the ideas of their ancestors. Science properly understood has no argument against such a procedure. Such a science is one of the most wonderful inventions of the human mind, but I am against ideologies that use the name of science for cultural murder. And I think that that's strong language that's very appropriate. This, this topic is fraught with moral issues and with an enormous amount of harm that's been done over the years by people who at the same time are doing an enormous amount of good. Uh, and that, that paradoxical combination comes from failure to understand these things. And I think that failure is rooted in the inaccurate understanding of what modernity means. And the, one of the most brilliant things about this book is that Ronnie and Stewart refused to accept the forced choice between scientific reductionism and postmodern relativism. And they transcended that and understand that there is, there is an intransigent reality out there that affects us that we may, ne- we will ne- not may, we will never fully know and understand. I have always told my students, certainty in knowledge is a direction, not a destination. And if you ever think you've gotten there, that's a bad thing. But you should always be headed in the direction that you think is where certainty lies. Uh, and that, that's how you can keep an open mind. So anyway, thank you so much for the opportunity to do this, and congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you.